please turn to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. There's an old expression, I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, familiarity breeds contempt, uh, meaning that when we become too familiar with something, uh, we sort of lose our appreciation for it. And I think that can be uh, the case with the stories that we find uh, regarding Christmas and the, the narratives here. Uh, that is, we know of the birth of Christ, we know of the angels declaring uh, the good news to the shepherds, we know of the, the wise men, we know of the little drummer boy who played his drum when the ox and the lamb kept time. Okay, that's not actually in the, in the Bible, but um, you might have thought it was. But, uh, but we can grow uh, familiar so that these stories, uh, sometimes we assume there's nothing new for us to learn. Uh, but then we have the privilege of sort of plumbing the depths of these passages even more. And we find that, uh, that these are like a gold mine that get more and more precious the deeper we get into them, especially as we're going to see this morning, uh, just how deep the Christmas stories go back into the Old Testament and have their roots into the Old Testament scriptures. And so what seems like a simple story about a simple birth and a, and a, and a, and a, and a message of angels, we, we start to understand there's some rich, rich biblical significance to the narratives of, of Christmas. And so it's our privilege this year as we consider the Christmas stories um, that we're, we're not just jumping in them, we're actually already in our series in Matthew. And so there's a sense in which uh, we're already neck deep into the, the details of the Christmas story. And I think it will allow us this morning to understand better uh, what is being written here by Matthew, uh, particularly in chapter 2, as we consider uh, the encounter of the wise men uh, visiting Jesus. And so that's where our study brings us this morning. Let's uh, read chapter 2 together, and then we'll, we'll get into our study after we pray. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of, of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest 
over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over, Ju- uh, over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're privileged to open up the scriptures this morning, gathering freely with no fear of persecution, all of this by your kind hand and your good grace to us. May we not take those privileges for granted. Lord, we're blessed to be gathered here this morning and to consider the gift you have given us in Jesus Christ. He came to live the sinless life that we could not live and died the sacrificial death we deserved to die, was raised again, and promises eternal life and hope and peace for anyone who will turn in repentance and faith to him. So Lord, we gather celebrating that message this morning and ask that our hearts would be stirred with greater affection for you, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. I think for the most part, The Christmas season is a season of joy. Uh, The songs are about joy, they are about laughter, they are about happiness. Uh, Joy to the world, have a holly, jolly Christmas. And everywhere you go in the Christmas season, the message is one of, of happiness. But this isn't true for everyone. In fact, we just sang... I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, written by Henry, Henry uh, Wadsworth Longfellow in, in a time of tremendous sorrow with the loss of, of, of his wife, and recounts his, this encouragement that the bells of Christmas gave him, reminding him that, that God is not dead, uh, but that he is alive and it has all things under control. And for people like 
Longfellow and sometimes those in his situation, if you've experienced uh, a recent loss or if you've experienced loss at all, uh, you know, the Christmas season, the holiday season can be a time of great sorrow where that loss feels even, even deeper. Uh, maybe the family's not together in a way that it was and you're reminded of how lonely things can be. And it can be especially difficult during these seasons. But as we turn our attention to the scriptures, and particularly the details that we find in the Christmas story, I'm struck by this reality, that the Christmas season is a reminder of God's faithfulness. So regardless of whether this is a time of joy for you or whether it's a time where, where, where loss becomes increasingly obvious, this is a time to remember that God has been faithful and will continue to be faithful. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, as you read the Christmas stories, it's hard to miss this particular reality that many of the promises of old that God had made in the New Testament are being fulfilled in the coming of of Christ. Like promises made a long time ago to to Mary, or, or, or promises that were made a long time ago, being fulfilled in the birth and the message of the angel to Mary. So like in Luke 30, uh, 131 through 33, the angel says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And it says this, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And what that, that message to Mary by the angel declares is that God made these promises in the past, and he's going to continue to be faithful to them. So the faithfulness of God is on display in the Christmas season. Uh, we don't have time, but if we could go into to, to Luke chapter 1, and after Zechariah uh, receives word that, that John the Baptist is going to be his son and prepare the way for the Messiah, uh, Zechariah sings this song in, in Luke chapter 1 and looks back to all of the Old Testament promises and what we're reminded of in that passage is that God is, is faithful in fulfilling his, his promises in, and that's extremely evident in the, the coming of Christ. So this, is, this should be an obvious point to us in the Christmas season, that God is fulfilling promises he has made earlier in the person of Jesus Christ. So it's hard for us not to be reminded of, of God's faithfulness during the Christmas season. Now, surely in times of hardship and trial and loss, it can be hard to remember God's steadfast love. And no doubt the people in these stories that we read had this feeling of God has forgotten us as we are here in exile. But as we begin to unpack these stories, it's, it's, this, it's this reminder that I want to bring to us this morning that, that the Christmas season is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. And that's the most important thing we see in in this passage. Now, before we get into that and sort of unpack that, uh, we need to walk through the details of this story to understand what is before us. And so we're going to unpack this story, and then once we've done that, we'll come back to this theme of God's faithfulness being evident in the Christmas stories. Now, just so you... uh, can stay organized in your thinking and, and along with me. I just have some mile markers as we walk through the story. They, they all start with an A, and there are five of them, uh, so you know how close we are to the end of the sermon. Okay, so let's begin, first of all, in this, in this chapter with the arrival of the Magi. 
So the events of chapter 2 begin with these words. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So some time has passed between the birth of Jesus and the arrival of the Magi. And, but we don't know how much time has passed in these events. It could have been just a few months. It could have been close to two years in this time. So uh, Luke tells us that after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph went up from Jerusalem uh, for the purification and to give an offering. Uh, according to the Mosaic Law, a woman who, was, who gave birth was ceremonially unclean for 40 days. And, and this was, like I said, according to the law. And, and when they went up the, to the temple, they offered a pair of turtle doves, which was a, an offering of, of poverty. We can assume that had the wise men already visited them, they would have had something more substantial to offer. But in this case, they are offering a, a, an offering that gives indication they didn't have much. Uh, in verse 7, we see Herod asking the wise men just when it was that the star appeared. And then when he makes his decree to kill the children, he chooses two years old and under. So it's possible that, that several months, maybe a year and a half, have passed since the time of... Um, since the time of uh, Jesus' birth. We also learn from verse 1 that these things transpired in the days of Herod the king. Now, the mention of Herod can be confusing at times in the New Testament because there were several Herods, but this was the first Herod, often referred to in history as Herod the Great. Uh, you'll remember that Palestine was under Romans control, Rome's control at this time, and Herod was appointed by Octavian and the Roman Senate to be king of this region of Judea. He assumed this position in 40 B.C. and is said to have died in 4 B.C., which puts the birth of Christ somewhere around 6 B.C., and, and it, it, probably within a few years of that, we don't know the exact date. And it's during this time that Matthew tells us that wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The word wise men often translated as, from the Greek New Testament as this word magi. And you'll be surprised to know that we have very, very little information on who these individuals were. Uh, in fact, Matthew is the only gospel writer to record the events of the magi. So, so what we know is, is quite limited. We know they came from east of Jerusalem. We know that it was a star that led them to inquire about the birth of the king of the Jews. They came bringing gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold, and, and they worshipped the baby. I mean, the only other detail I can add is we know that at this current day, one of them only has one hand, because when I was uh, in high school or college, my mom had a, had a porcelain nativity set, and and there was one that was sort of raising his hand like this, and I was practicing my chipping with my sand wedge in the, in the living room, and I accidentally bumped the table that the wise men were on, and down went the wise men, just snapped his hand clean off at the wrist. And I got one of those speeches of, you're the reason we can't have any, any nice things, right? So um, still today, this very day, that wise man still has no hand, and my mom still puts him up every year, so... It's a reminder that her son's not perfect because otherwise she might, she might forget. So. so we can make certain guesses about these men, but aside from the details we know uh, here in this passage, we, we don't know a whole lot about them. Uh, so several centuries uh, ago, the, the word magi referred to 
the individuals in, in Babylon. So you remember when Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 has his dream and they call the wise men in to attempt to interpret it. The same term is used here of those individuals. Now, as the, as the term went along, it began to refer to individuals who were into dreams and astrology and, and magic. But it does seem that, the, that the, the older sense of the word here is being used by Matthew. That is, that there were individuals who were inquiring into the significance of this star and had a, a reasonable purpose and, and, and spiritual meaning to it. So it's likely that these individuals were from Babylon. And Babylon would have been the place that probably had the most uh, exposure historically to the, the teachings of, of the Old Testament. Right? So Daniel was a, a figure there, a, a leader in the nation. There were many Jews probably still living in that area that did not come back um, in the, uh, after Cyrus allowed them to. And so there was access to the Hebrew scriptures, access to Jews, and, and, and some even believe that, that Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 is a, is a prediction that a star will come in connection with, uh, with the coming of the Christ. And so it's, it's possible that these individuals were from Babylon. Now, through the centuries, the birth, uh, there's been wild speculation as to who these men were. Um, in fact, allegedly their bodies were discovered by St. Helena on her first pilgrimage to Palestine in the Holy Lands. She dug them up and the bones of these three men, assuming there were three, and she knew right away that these were the three wise men. And so today, if you would like to visit their uh, remains, you can do so at the, sh the Shrine of the Three Kings at the Cologne Cathedral. And I'm sure for a, a nice price, you can walk right in there and see uh, what's, what remains of them. And if you believe this, I have some oceanfront property in uh, Arizona that I would uh, love to, to sell you. The fact is, we don't know much about these individuals. So they arrive in Jerusalem and they're asking this question where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the text doesn't say that it led them, the star led them to Jerusalem, but it, it may be that they expected the king to be born in Jerusalem. And so they, they come and they come, and we shouldn't expect either that they went straight to Herod. In fact, they probably showed up expecting the people in the area to know as well that the king was born. And as they inquire about the king of the Jews being born, the message sort of works its way to Herod. And so then Herod begum, begins to be curious about this. Well, that leads us to the second portion, portion of our story, the agitation of Herod. So notice what it says in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, when the Bible says that all of Jerusalem was troubled at the inquiry of a, a newborn king, it's not, that the, it's not that Jerusalem was against a newborn king. It's that when Herod was troubled, then that meant trouble for the people of Israel. One of those kind of things where it's like, when, where, when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Because history tells us that while he was a great leader and did much to, to bring stability to that area and some prosperity to that, prosperity to that area, he was uh, sitting on a political and religious powder keg. He was a very suspicious and jealous man, 
And just four years before he came to power, Julius Caesar was also assassinated by the Roman Senate. And if it could happen to, to him, it could happen to Herod as well. And so Herod was a cruel and merciless man. He was incredibly suspicious of his position and power. On one occasion, he, he had his brother-in-law, the high priest, accidentally drowned. He killed his favorite wife, her mother, and his two sons for fear that they were conspiring for his throne. And at his death, he even had people murdered so that somebody would be weeping and mourning in the area. So when the wise men arrive on the scene and they start asking, where is the king of the Jews? Well, you can understand why there started to be a restlessness in the area. If they were asking, where is the king of Rome or Syria? No big deal. But asking the king of the Jews, well, that had the potential to set Herod off. As we'll see later in the chapter, it does. Now, in order to find the answer to the question, Herod then gathers people who should know the answer. He gathers the chief priests and the scribes. And there was, according to the Old Testament law, only supposed to be one chief priest. But in this particular time, it was, it was um, an office that was sort of had political favoritism involved, and, and leaders could, could move and appoint chief priests. So the chief priests, plural, were anybody who held it in the past and who held it currently. And the scribes were the, the teachers of the law. In other words, they were, they were experts in the Mosaic law because much of civil law was based on the Old Testament in this day. And so the scribes were seen as the, the leaders and often referred to as lawyers. The point is, they knew the law in its technical sense. And so when they're asked this question, where is he born king of the Jews? Notice their response in verses 5 and 6. They tell him right away, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, According to the scriptures, Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, they tell Herod. It's plainly seen in the scriptures. And yet what's, complete, what's interesting is they seem completely indifferent to this fact. They don't go and pursue the birth of the Messiah. They don't look into these details. They just give the technical answer according to scripture and then seem to move on from these things. Well, now the Herod gets his answer. He summons the wise men again to himself, as the text tells us, privately or secretly. And his first inquiry is concerning the timing of the appearance of the star, verse 7. And as we've already said, he had no interest in worshiping Christ, but just finding out how old was this Messiah. And once he received his desired answer, he sends them on their way to Jerusalem and says, or sends them on their way to Bethlehem and says, when you, when you find him, come back to me because I would like to worship him too. And why didn't he send someone with them? Well, maybe he uh, figured he had them deceived and expected, by all accounts, the wise men to return and give the news back to him. He did not anticipate divine intervention in the form of an angelic dream. Well, this brings us to the adoration, then, of Jesus. The adoration of Jesus. After meeting with Herod, the wise men proceed on to Bethlehem, which is about eight miles from Jerusalem, and as they're headed to Bethlehem the, Bethlehem, the star appears again. And it's an indication that this star was no normal star, but a miraculous star that was appearing and disappearing. And, and it, it, it lands right over the place where Jesus is. And Matthew tells us in verse 10 
that when the star appeared and led them to Jesus, it says that the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's an interesting expression. What Matthew does here is he, he piles superlative upon superlative. So it's one thing to rejoice. It's another thing to rejoice exceedingly. It's quite another thing to uh, rejoice exceedingly with joy, but then this is great joy. All right, so he's, he's expounding on this idea of, of just how joyful the wise men were when they found the Christ. Verse 11 tells us that they came to the house where Jesus was. They saw him, they fell down, and they worshipped him. In other words, they recognized Jesus for who he was. The promised one of Israel. We just sang these words from Charles Wesley. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell And just like what was promised, Jesus our Emmanuel. As they recognized Jesus for who he was, the the, the only true and proper response was one of of worship. Verse 11 says that they gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a costly and appropriate gift for considering who Jesus was. In fact, one author says this, their giving was not so much an addition to their worship as an element of it. The gifts were an expression of worship given out of the overflow of adoring and grateful hearts. This was an act of worship as they gave these gifts to Jesus and the family. Well, the good news of finding Jesus was quickly followed with some bad news in this story. And the bad news comes in the form of a dream. In fact, the bad news comes in the form of of two dreams. There's a dream in verse 12, and there is a dream in verse 13, one given to the wise men and the other given to Joseph, that it's time to get moving because Herod is about to destroy or seek to destroy Jesus. And this brings us to our fourth mile marker through this passage. There is the attempt to murder Jesus. This brings us to verse 16, where we're told that Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. And when this happened, it says that he became furious. And the way this word is is worded in the original, this particular phrase is, is showing us that he was enraged and out of control. So in other words, what little judgment or ability he had to reason was long gone. And he would now do whatever he could to eliminate the Messiah. So Herod made the regretful decision to murder all of the male babies in Bethlehem who were of the age of two years old or younger. A small town, so probably estimated at about 20 male children. This was, again, according to the age that he had ascertained from the wise men. And his decision was even more vile considering that he had heard clearly who Jesus was promised in the Old Testament, born in Bethlehem, was the Messiah. In fact, he refers to him as the Messiah earlier in this passage. And yet he chose to reject Jesus and attempt to murder him. Well, this brings us to the end of the story where we have the arrival of Jesus in Nazareth. So for the remainder of Herod's reign, 
Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are now tucked away in the land of Egypt. And once Herod dies, which was maybe a few years, an angel appeared again to Joseph saying, all right, now it's safe to go back to Israel. And so verse 22 tells us, though, that Archelaus, which was Herod's son, was ruling in Jerusalem. So by the means of another dream, he is led to the region of Nazareth, which is in the northern region of the area near the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Jesus settled until he was 30 years old and he began his earthly ministry. And it's actually at this point, Matthew ends the birth narratives and moves then right into the ministry of Jesus in chapter 3, which we'll come to in the coming weeks. So this is the familiar account of the wise men uh, making the long journey to pay homage to the king of the Jews. Now you might ask, as you look at this particular passage, what does this passage have to do with the faithfulness of God? Right? You said that Christmas is a reminder of God's faithfulness, so what's the connection with the theme of faithfulness and this particular passage? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. As I walk through the events of this story, there were four statements in this text to which I gave almost no detail. Did you notice what those were? There are four references in this passage to Old Testament prophecy in chapter 2. And these stand as a reminder of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. So just notice them, right? So the the first one appears here in in verses 5 and 6, where they say, He is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. The the second appearance here of the Old Testament prophecy is found in verse 15, where at the end of verse 15, it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. The third reference to Old Testament prophecy here is in verses 17 and 18, After the the babies are murdered, it says in verse 17, then what was fulfilled was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, and it quotes from Jeremiah there. And then the last reference to prophecy is found at the end of the chapter in verse 23. And when he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So there are four references to Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in chapter 2. In fact, Matthew wrote this gospel. There were no chapter divisions. So this is actually the fifth occurrence of Old Testament prophecy in this introductory section of of the book, right? Because the previous one is found in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So in this section, there are, are five references, which is a lot for, for these two chapters, five references to Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in the birth of Christ. So now let's, let's go back a little bit in our previous sermons and remember the purpose for which Matthew writes this gospel. He's writing to a, a largely Jewish audience, And he's writing to present Jesus as the promised king of the Old Testament. Okay, catch all of that statement. It's the promised king, but rooted in the promises of the Old Testament. So you remember he begins chapter 1 with what? A a genealogy. 
connecting Jesus to David and connecting Jesus to Abraham and showing that he was in the Davidic line and as the son of David was the rightful heir as the, as the, the Messiah. After he, after he does this genealogy, then he, he continues through this section to root, to root the, the birth of Jesus Christ in Old Testament prophecy. And in each one of these prophecies, there should be the reminder to us that God continues to be faithful to the promises he made. In other words, if he was, promised, if he was faithful before to fulfill his promises then we know that he will continue to be faithful to fulfill his promises. So let's notice just these these passages quickly. Okay, So chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, there was a prophecy that Messiah would be born of a virgin. This is found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In fact, in two weeks, on Christmas Eve, we're going to dig into this passage in uh, the book of Isaiah. But this was to fulfill... Uh, this was fulfilled, I rather, in Christ and demonstrated God's faithfulness as he promised years before. The second prophecy that mentioned is in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. We've also read it, already read it a couple of times. Herod asks the chief priests and the scribes where the Messiah would be born. And they knew the answer immediately. And they reference Old Testament prophecy, a quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2 that predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Now, this was some 800 years prior to when Jesus was born. Okay? But God proved faithful in the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the first two. Uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now, let me pause here and just note that the first two prophecies that we just considered, the virgin birth and being born in Bethlehem, those are abundantly clear prophetic passages. In other words, if you're reading the Old Testament, you can get from the Old Testament passage that it's a prediction of the coming Messiah. The next two passages, or the next two prophecies, are not as clear. And lots and lots and lots and lots of ink has been, spent, has been spilled on exactly the meaning and connection of Christ with these two other Old Testament prophecies that we find here in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and then again in verses 17 and 18. So I'll give my best attempt to give like a clear answer as the connection here, but if I disappoint you, um, I, that's okay, because I'm disappointed in myself too. So here we have two other prophecies mentioned in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. In fact, let me read those to you again. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And he rose and he took the child, that is Joseph, and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then Matthew says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now the challenge here is this. This is a clear quote from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. But if you go back and read Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, you would see that Hosea is not making any kind of reference to a prophecy about the Messiah. As Hosea 11, 1 uh, mentions, he's, he's talking about the, the, the Exodus, okay, and, and referencing a, a historical event of the Exodus. So the question for us, that is, 
well, how does this event relate to Jesus? And how does Jesus make this, or how does, how does Matthew make this connection to this prophecy in Hosea uh, about the coming Messiah? And furthermore, you have to think, take this into consideration. Matthew is writing to Jews, and he's trying to convince them that, that Jesus is, and his birth and his coming is connected to the Old Testament. So how is he convincing Jews of their scriptures and the coming of Jesus from, from Hosea chapter 11? Well, like I said, it's difficult to know, and there are a lot of possibilities in, in answering this question. But it seems to me that in referencing chapter 11, verse 1, that Matthew is actually connecting Jesus not just to verse 1, but to the entire prophecy that follows in chapter 11. So as, I, as, as Hosea 11, 1 continues, there's promise as reference to the first exodus, and then there's promise to a second exodus or deliverance, that will come when Israel is regathered in the end times. And in connecting Jesus to Hosea 11, Matthew is saying Jesus is the one who's going to lead this second exodus. So in other words, in sending Jesus, God has set in motion events that will culminate in the end times, that will be restored when Israel is in their, in their homeland. Now, in all of this, we see that God is continuing to show himself faithful. He set things in motion that will be fulfilled at a later date. The next prophecy we have here is in, is in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Let me read this one for you again. Right after the murder of the children, we read, then was, what was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And verse 18 says this, A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, it's difficult to know how Jesus is connected to this particular Old Testament statement. It's, a, it's another Old Testament quote. In fact, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. You probably can see in your, in your notes there in the Bible there's some sort of cross-reference there. In Jeremiah 31... Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, the, the mother of, of some of the tribes of Israel, is pictured as, as crying in Ramah, which is a town near Bethlehem, because the tribes are being carried off into exile into Babylon. Now, Rachel's not actually crying in Jeremiah 31. She's been dead for 1,400 years. But this is an imagery as the, the mother of Israel Okay? This is an imagery that Jeremiah uses, that she's weeping over the, over the exile that Israel faces. So how does this fulfill, then, uh, the connection with, with Jesus? These weeping mothers that lost their children in Bethlehem, how is this connected to this murderous act? I think the connection is that we see that Israel is still in exile at this time. Rachel is still weeping, and a foreign king who sits on the throne is destroying the, the children of Israel. But what's interesting about Jeremiah 31, verse 15, where Rachel is pictured as weeping, there is actually in this passage hope offered. Because when you read Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17, there is hope for a future for Israel. And Matthew in this passage may be referencing that, that, yeah, you're in sorrow now, but there's hope to come because Jesus will not leave his people in exile forever. He will be the king who restores them. 
And so in, in this sense, it may be that or we see that, 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 that God is being faithful to his promise. The exile is not going to last forever, but Christ will come. The last prophecy here is found in verse 23. And it says this, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this is the interesting thing about verse 23 is that this is not a direct quote of any Old Testament passage. So as you look back to the Old Testament, you won't find a prophet who says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Rather, what I think is happening here is that, in fact, he even says here, this is to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophets. It's plural in verse 23. And in other words, what's being said here by the prophets is in calling Jesus a Nazarene, they're saying that he would be one who is rejected, right? So to be a Nazarene was to be an outcast. Remember, remember Nathaniel's words when, when he hears of the Messiah coming from Nazareth, he asked that question in the book of John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's a sense here where there's a prediction that Jesus would be rejected by being associated with, with Nazareth. It's, it's kind of like being from Detroit, right? So, so I was recently at a, at a family funeral and saw some family, and they're asking, where do you live? I said, oh, just north of Detroit. And it's like, oh, that's pretty dangerous, don't you think? It's like, well, I got not really, but I mean, you, can, you think that it is, you know? And you, but we, we who are from the area, we, we know that, that response. You tell people you're from the Detroit area, you know? They they, uh, they feel bad for you. And, and it's not just because of the lions, you know? So, um, so it's, a, it's the same idea. I wasn't to offend anybody. Lions are doing great. Um, so it's that same idea in Jesus being from Nazareth. It's kind of this, this side eye that he would be one who is rejected by being connected to Nazareth. So we see that the coming of Christ then, there are numerous prophecies either fulfilled or set into motion with the coming of Christ. He was born of a virgin, he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be the one who leads Israel out of exile, and he would be rejected by his own. But in each of these fulfillments, we have a reminder that God is faithful. If he was faithful to fulfill his former promises, he will be faithful to fulfill his latter promises yet to come. And in this sense, the Christmas season is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. Right? So whatever we're encountering... We, we come to this Christmas season and we're reminded, yep, God continues to work. God continues to be faithful. I'm reminded of this hymn, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Could you, could you turn there for me in uh, hymn 197? I think some of this is brought out in, uh, in, this, in this particular hymn. We're probably familiar with the earlier portion of the, of the song, but not as much the latter portion. It speaks of a, of a song that has split the sky the night of Christ's birth, right? That the angels sang, it came upon a midnight clear, the glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Now, what's the song? What's the next line tells us? Peace on earth. 
goodwill to men. And this was the song that rings. So then he, he kind of fast forwards in verse 2 to, to generations to follow. Still through the cloven skies they come with peaceful wings unfurled. And still their heavenly music floats o'er all the weary world. Above its sad and lowly plains they bend on hovering wing. And ever o'er its babble sounds the blessed angels sing. Like the, the, sing, the song is still continuing of, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then verse 3, I think, is, is pretty interesting because he gives a better picture of like where we are. A better picture of like what we often think about the, the peace on earth, goodwill to men. He says, and, and ye, you, uh, beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, He's referring here to the, the, the hardness of life, the difficulties, the challenges of, of, of being slumped over and pressed down, and, 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 and as we climb through this life, our, our steps are painful, and they're not very quick. He says this in the thir- that, that third line. He says, look now. For glad and golden hours, they come swiftly on the wing." O rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. But then we'd be like, well, okay, well, well, how do we know these better days are coming? How do we know that peace on earth and goodwill to men is, is coming? And he says this in verse 4, For behold, or for lo, the days are hastening on. And how do we know this? Well, the prophets spoke of, of these days. The prophets barred foretold. That when with the ever-circling years shall come to a time foretold. When the new heaven and the new earth shall own the prince of peace, their king. When all of these prophecies come to pass that the prophets foretold. And the conclusion is, and the whole world will then send back the song which the angels sang of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And I think this passage fits with our theme of, or this song fits with our theme of God's faithfulness. That yeah, it probably has, perhaps in the midst of the Christmas season, sometimes we feel dejected, we feel low, we feel we're struggling as if we're climbing through life and our steps are painful and slow. And there doesn't seem to always be much hope. But he says, no. He says, glad and golden hours are coming swiftly. How do we know this? Because the prophets foretold it. That the new heaven and the new earth and the prince of peace will, will they'll, they'll, the new heaven and the new earth, they'll, they'll own their prince of peace, their king. And there will be this song of rejoicing of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, I don't know what circumstance or situation you face at this particular moment or whether the holiday season is a, a joyous occasion or a challenging and difficult occasion for you. But a simple reminder from these passages this morning is, 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 is helpful for you. That in spite of what's taking place around us, we're reminded God's been faithful before, and the Christmas story is evident of that. He will continue to be faithful in the days to come. So we put our anchor on that and hold fast to the sure and steady Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for 
the encouragement we receive from these passages that they're not just familiar stories, but they're so rich with meaning and significance. And so we ask that our hearts would be uh, propped up and buffeted and strengthened by, uh, by the words that we considered this morning. Thank you, Lord, for meeting our needs and providing our salvation. And let us, as we go from this place this morning, be reminded that you are a faithful God, that you do not change, and that you watch over us every minute of every day and will continue to do so because you have in the past. So our confidence is that you will in the future as well. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.